invite you to turn to Acts chapter 10. We're picking up in the middle of the longest story in Acts. We plan on finishing that story today. It's interesting, you know, last week, if you were here, we took a break. I just felt like the Lord wanted me to talk about current events. Then other times I feel like I do messages and I finish them and I finish the slideshow and I say to myself, well, that's it. But then I just felt like the Lord said, you know, it, it may not hit you. It might hit some other, somebody else. And so that's what I'm trusting. You're just going to hear the gospel today. That's all. I'm sorry. We are in the middle of a story about Cornelius, uh, a Roman centurion, what Jews would call Gentile, non-Jewish, and the Jewish mind meaning not of the chosen race. But apparently God nor Cornelius apparently counseled with the Jews when Cornelius started practicing true faith. <laughs> And was started to worship the one true God. And God showed up to Cornelius in a dream to get him on track on how to practice worshiping him in the completed way through Jesus. As I said, we're going to complete this story today. It's a lot of verses, but a lot of it is repetition of the same events that began as we begin studying in chapter 9. Uh, with Peter staying at the Tanner's house. Here's an actual picture of that house. And you said, wow, I can tell, right? No, I'm <laughs> That's exactly how I imagined it. No, another... The Tanner, though, is an unclean profession. And although Simon the Tanner was a Jewish man, perhaps he was a backslidden Jewish man who became Christian, and maybe he wasn't convicted concerning his unclean profession. We don't know. But in any case... While there, Peter had a vision, one vision which we're going to hear about again today in our reading as Peter recounts that vision. However, because of that vision, he he felt it okay to break his Jewish tradition and come to this Roman, to this Gentile's house. And that's actually right where we pick up when Peter and some fellow Jewish converts of Christianity, they the men who sent Cornelius sent to retrieve Peter, they all have back arrived back at Cornelius' house. We're going to finish out chapter 10 in our reading right now, but also I plan to eventually study all the way through chapter 11, verse 18. It made sense to me, though, to go through it simultaneously just to confuse you. No, actually not. But actually, it will be easy to just pull from chapter 11 as we are going through the rest of chapter 10. So we are going to be going through it a bit weirdly, but I think you'll understand it. I invite you to stand if you're able to as we read the Word of God together and hear it. We'll begin in chapter 10, verse 24, and just read through the end of chapter 10 together right now. We read... And on the following day, they, Peter and company, entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. He said to them, 
You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all you have been commanded um, by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who, has been, who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Jesus were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we, many times we think too little of you that you would use the words of the gospel to change hearts and lives, to change trajectories of lives that have been going in directions that were never meant to go in a perfect world. Father, we're so grateful that what you showed Peter and the church and the Gentiles here, that you are the one true God over all nations, over all kingdoms, over all peoples. And Father, in you, you've broken down the wall and you are our peace. There's no longer hostility between Jew and Gentile, between races, between nations. Father, how great it is that you don't stop there, but you call us to be part of this mission, to continue to bring this message of peace to other people. But Father, would you warm our hearts today with it? Would you work a fresh insight in our lives? Father, would we be able to use the words we hear this very week? Because we want to be loving and serving you and loving and serving others. And so we ask these things and we ask that you would do this work in your son's name. And we ask that it would be you speaking and not I. Amen. You may be seated. 
you're like me and you were raised in the church, sometimes we can be raised in a Christian bubble. I have parents who didn't drink or smoke or frequent bars or even frequent events that had much drinking or partying. And the closest I came to such activities were attending something close to the beer garden one barbecue days. I wasn't at the beer garden, but the next to it. But then I remember walking back one evening, uh, since you know when, when barbecue days happens in Kamii, all the blocks are parked, and we lived, I don't know how many blocks away from where all the events took place, but it was about an, I don't know, eight minute walk or so, and so I was walking back one evening, probably seven or even later because it was dark outside, and I remember seeing this this lady who was apparently either drunk or very high, very intoxicated, and some of you know that they put out those benches for you to watch the parade down there, and she was stumbling around and she said to me, hey, is this a bench? <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Thank you. And she sat down finally. And I hurried my way home. I think I was maybe a 10, 11, or 12. It was really the first encounter that I probably had with a person who was intoxicated. And there was a little bit of fear in me, a little bit of unease. As Christians, especially as Christians from the womb, we begin to develop unspoken rules. Sometimes they are spoken rules, but they're just not biblical rules. I came from a Christian tradition that pretty much taught any alcohol was forbidden. And it went beyond Scripture, and it had good reason to in some instances. I don't know how many recovering alcoholics who told me they never wish they had that first drink. (laughs) But I also know many Christians who drink alcohol and aren't alcoholics now, and they don't get drunk, as Scripture lays out, that you shouldn't get drunk. And it took a while for me to reason through this stigma. We develop traditions. We develop weird thought patterns. Can can Christians really get food from the casino or the bar and and remain unstained? (laughs) I know many Christians who love the burgers at the casino. I do too. But then there's the question, well, yes, but do we support these businesses with our money? And then I also reason, well, my $5.78 or whatever on a given Tuesday Four times a year, if I didn't give them that money, is it going to do much damage to their business? Unspoken rules, traditions, unease whenever we might cross those traditions or those rules. Paul talks about stuff like this in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, how we navigate our conscience and navigate our freedoms. When other Christians may not feel so free to do such things, and how we ought not to harm the faith of someone else who may not feel comfortable where maybe we're fine and we have no convictions about some of these unspoken rules. Peter is showing up at a Gentile's house. I don't know if there is anything in our culture or society that we can understand the dynamics of how Jewish people felt about people who weren't Jewish and going into their homes. It's just a fact of life. I'm not saying it's right, but it was a fact. It was a given in their culture to walk in a Jewish person's house is like walking into a pigsty, and they don't like pigs either, (laughs) or pigs run clean as well. See, the, the scandal 
the stigma, the only thing I can think of is, is almost as if you or I were to walk into a meth-making house. And, and you and I are already like, I know I'm going to hate or be put off by many things when I come into the house, but I'm scared about the things I don't expect. That's also going to make me hate it all the more. <laughs> That's almost the preconceived ideas for most devout Jews walking into or traveling into a Gentile's house. In fact, in chapter 11, Peter has to report about this to the church. That's how big of a scandal it is, right? Like how many of you, like I got to go tell Kevin I visited this house. <laughs> but Peter's obedience to do what God has called him to do is a scandal. <laughs> Here's what's happening among the believers when they hear about Peter making such a visit. We're going to already look at 11 uh, verses 1 through 3. We see now the apostles... And the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Spoiler, that's what happens at the end of this chapter. So, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. The circumcision party. Is that a real party name? <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. Some wonder if it's Luke who writes the book of Acts or, or Paul who uses this term as well. Maybe it's their way of talking derogatorily about those Jews who became believers, but then they held to this idea that, well, Christianity is an outgrowth of Judaism and the sign of the covenant has been circumcision, so we need Christians to do that too, which, of course, Luke and Paul and Peter would oppose. But you see here in Peter's first report after this fact that even among the believers, this is altogether wild. Like Gentiles, non-Jews, actively going to their houses to witness to them, eating with them. Like it's one thing if Cornelius came, I don't know, groveling and begging Peter, hey, let me in. But the idea that Peter of being the one to go to his house, that was what was unexpected even for believers at this time. So if we go back to chapter 10 and verse 24, we see how this happened. It said, And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. We talked about this two weeks ago, that Caesarea is a port. Caesarea Martima is a seaport on the Mediterranean. It's basically the, the primary capital city where uh, Rome was concerned. That's where the Roman ruler would rule over the Jewish people. That's where they would live and work. But they go to Caesarea Martima to this Roman centurion, Cornelius, and he was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. The point is, this is more than just, hey, I have some visitors coming. <laughs> Drop by with some food later on and party with us. Actually, no, Cornelius is going to explain here in a minute why he's gathering the entire block, it seems like, to receive this visitor, this Peter. <clears throat> in fact, we see next Cornelius receives him as more than just a man. In verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Well, that really doesn't happen every day. <laughs> not, not even then. Luke, the author of this book, of this Bible, tells us that here Cornelius worshipped him. Now, I don't know, that, that to me sounds like more than just homage or respect, or it seems to appear that way to Peter. He says, but 
But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Peter arrives, and he arrives saying how his mind has been recently changed about preconceived Jewish ideas about entering Gentile houses. Now, we talked about this after the fact that when Peter goes to Jerusalem and he forms the church about this conversion, he's received a little bit harshly. Again, they told him that he's breaking tradition. How dare he meet and eat with uncircumcised Gentiles? How could he? But then Peter answers them about the vision he had. The same vision that changed his mind when he says here to Cornelius and the gathered people that God has shown me, I should not call any person common or unclean. And so here's how he explains that vision in chapter 11 to the Jerusalem gathering. It says, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And the actual account in chapter 9 says that he was hungry because he was praying around the same time as lunch. And so they said that they were preparing things and says, so Peter says, and in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me looking at it closely. I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers, Christians, witnesses, who will verify with Peter everything that's going to take place with Cornelius. So Peter's thinking smartly. They also accompanied me, says Peter, and we entered the man's house. It's kind of a bizarre vision, especially if you're not Jewish and you don't know the symbolism or connect it right away. There are, in the Jewish laws in the Old Testament, laws against eating certain sorts of animals, pigs, other unclean animals. You notice I just think about pigs because I really like bacon. But um, this sheet presents to Peter a vision all sorts of animals, clean and unclean. And God presents it very cleverly while Peter's hungry. Hey, go rise, kill and eat. And he says this three times, a biblical way, a repetition, meaning, hey, this is true. You're hearing this correctly. Do as it's stated. And the flow of this narrative obviously directs Peter to a Gentile's house, to Cornelius's house. And the point that Peter receives, first of all, is this, verse 12 in chapter 11. And the Spirit told me to go with them, that is to Cornelius' house, a Gentile, making no distinction. How so? What's the point of no distinction? In fact, the first gathering at Jerusalem here in chapter 11 would be followed by a greater gathering, chapter 15. Now the denomination has to get together. This is a big thing. You went to a Gentile's house. 
Peter says there, here's what this dream means to me. Here's what giving the gospel to Cornelius, a Roman Gentile, a non-Jew means. He says in Acts 15, 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. We'll see that by the end of today. And He, God, made no distinction between us and them. So that's the dream. That's the revelation that Peter has from the dream. The question is, is how is this old Jewish tradition, even inspired by their very law in Deuteronomy, how is this broken, Peter says, having cleansed their hearts by faith? Faith in God. Faith in Christ that He saves us from our sins. So we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because Peter is going to preach this to Cornelius and the gathered in a bit. But the point is, is that this dream means Gentile and Jews are all equal in the sight of God. All are worth saving in the sight of God. All can be saved in the sight of God. All are beckoned to be saved by God. That's Cornelius' point as we return back to Acts 10. He was beckoned by God. See, Peter wasn't the only one who had a vision. While God was working through Peter's traditions as a Jew and his and dealing with his breaking down that old barrier between Jews and Gentiles, Cornelius had been a, among the best practicing Jews, only in a religious sense, not an ethnic sense, because he was Roman. Luke told us at the beginning of Acts 10 that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually to God. And so here Cornelius recounts the dream he had before Peter had his dream. He says, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. First and foremost, this testimony should tell Peter and those with Peter that God is acting, that God is moving in a Gentile, that God is speaking to a Gentile and speaking about something that the Jewish mind only allowed for Jews, <laughs> salvation. Reunion with God. The union that God had with the first people in the world in the garden, Adam and Eve. Spiritually, that reunion, that closeness with God is to be had in Jesus. Now, if you really think about it, were Adam and Eve Jews? They weren't circumcised. They never heard of the law, except for the one law that God eventually gave them. And for Peter and for many Jews... It was only thought possible for Jews, salvation and reunion with God. Peter gets it here. He understands right here what this is about. See, it's interesting when Peter reports this part, what Cornelius said to him right here to a few folks in Jerusalem. Back in chapter 11, he says, And he, Cornelius, told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message and listen how Peter interprets what Cornelius said here. The reason Peter was to come and give a message is that it is by which you 
will be saved. You and all your household. Peter knows the reason that God told Cornelius to send for him. Peter, coupled with the vision that Peter had, realizes that God is doing nothing less than save Gentiles. (laughs) Starting here with Cornelius. See, Peter was necessary. The message Peter has for Cornelius is necessary. Some folks sitting in churches still think this way. It's only necessary to try and impress God. And if I do enough good deeds and if I don't like bad deeds, I'm a pretty good guy compared to the next guy. If I side with, with Christians politically or if, and, and, and it's just not enough. It's not enough. Cornelius, by Luke's definition, is a devout man fearing God, giving alms generously, praying, but that wasn't enough. It was necessary for Peter to be here in front of Cornelius. An angel told Cornelius, hey, send for Peter. When an angel shows up and says you need somebody to talk to you, it's probably necessary. (laughs) Sorry, Landon. (laughs) Peter says, I needed to be there in front of Cornelius, in front of their household so they could be saved. And now so, so now Peter unfolds the gospel and he's not in a synagogue. He's not among Jews, but he's about to tell a Roman about a Jewish rabbi who died to save people from their sins. And I say this often. I bring out what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Do you hear that? Folly. Peter's probably wondering, what's, why is Cornelius going to care about a Jewish rabbi? What? Okay, well, here's what Jesus wants me to tell you. <laughs> Cornelius believes that that dead Jewish rabbi rose again. <laughs> Peter begins back here in Acts 10.34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The book of Deuteronomy tells us, for the Lord your God, Yahweh, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. That word would be non-Jews passing through ancient Israel, giving him food and clothing. God is God of gods. (laughs) That That means God, Yahweh, is supreme. There is no other God besides him. Paul informs us in Romans 1 that so-called other gods are just things where people have foolishly exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So God is God over all people, over all nations. It is God Yahweh who should be served. And for people like Cornelius, born into a religious pluralistic society with plenty of so-called gods, the one true God, Yahweh, beckons Cornelius. Because anyone who fears Yahweh and does what is right is acceptable to Yahweh. And now Peter unfolds to him the gospel. 
In these eight verses, Peter gives what really amounts to actually a summary of a gospel account in your Bible. In fact, the general flow mirrors the gospel of Mark. It is believed that actually the gospel of Mark is written down by John Mark while being dictated to Peter. That Peter is actually the one telling him, hey, write these things down. In any case, Peter begins, as for the word that he sent to Israel. So here Peter is stating that the God who is God over gods and Lord over lords and saves all, he unapologetically has his revealed origin. He has no true origin because he is eternal, but his revealed origin was the word sent to Israel. That's just how it is. Hey, the real God comes from Israel. Preaching good news of peace. In the Old Testament especially, we have passages talking about peace in the racial, ethnic, national sense. Isaiah 57, 19 says that God declares peace, peace to the far, that's the Gentile, the non-Jew, and peace to the near, that's the Jewish, the Israelite, says the Lord. Back here in Peter's exhortation, he's saying that it is peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Do you see what, I, what would be called the deifying of Jesus that Peter just gave to him? See, Peter began saying that God shows no partiality. He's the God of all. And here Peter says Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And about this Jesus, Peter continues... In verse 37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. Luke is writing the book of Acts, and whenever Luke writes his gospel, you realize who attended John's baptism? Luke 3.14 tells us that Roman soldiers were there. (laughs) I wonder if soldiers like Cornelius may have been there. I don't know. Verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That's a big statement. (laughs) We don't just say that everybody has authority over the devil. (laughs) Jesus does. Jesus heals. Jesus frees those oppressed by the devil. And Peter then says, in verse 39, And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Peter is basically saying, I'm probably going to leave out some things. (laughs) And if you hear other things, feel free to talk to us. If you want verifications of what you hear, we can verify everything I'm saying I saw. This isn't hearsay. Peter ends in verse 39 stating, They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Now, why does Peter not say cross here? (laughs) Peter is being particular in his word choice. He's actually using words. uh, He's actually used these same words, I should say, earlier in Acts in front of a Jewish audience. But maybe he notes Cornelius' devout faith. And it could be that Cornelius has his hands on the first five books of the Bible, ones that most Jews would read at that time. And in the law... Deuteronomy 21:23 says that a man who hangs on a tree is cursed. Now, 
This is, an un, this is pretty intriguing until Peter would go on and finish the story. Because up to here then, a studied man like Cornelius, who may be familiar with the law, might be saying, wait, why are you telling me about Jesus then? He's cursed. He's hung on a tree. That's what the law says. But then Peter, first-hand witness of Jesus, says this, and we really got to read to the end of his giving the gospel through 43. So Jesus was put to death by hanging on a tree, a sign of the curse in the law. But then verse 40, But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So that ending here in verse 43 is directly related to the importance of verses 39 and 40. He was put to death on a tree in verse 40. He rose again. See, any convert to Judaism, like Cornelius and his house, would know that the Bible opens up, Genesis opens up by presenting some pretty simple truths. In the beginning, God. Well, God exists. (laughs) God created a world where His prized creation, humanity, Genesis shows us that Figuratively, God prizes humanity over the rest of creation. You know how he spoke everything into existence? What does he do when he comes to humanity? He comes down, he forms them with his hands. God created them to walk together in the garden, to be in each other's presence. But sin, willful disobedience to God, ignoring God, falling short of his glory, were made to glorify him. And if we usurp Him instead of reflect Him, we're trying to do our own thing. And in that hour of sin, the first sin, Genesis records that the expectation of the sinner is to die. (laughs) Death is a cause of sin. That's why it comes for everyone. And what happens, what the significance of Jesus is, is when death came to Him, He rose again. (laughs) That means He's sinless. And a sinless death is all over the rest of the first five books of the Bible. God commands people to do unblemished, spotless, symbolizing sinless sacrifices in substitution for the sins of the people. In fact, even in the first sin of Adam and Eve, he sheds the blood of some animals and covers up their nakedness with animal skins. Symbolically saying, it costs blood to cover up your shame. But animal blood is still animal blood. In Christ, we have God becoming a man, shedding His own perfect, sinless, spotless blood to save us. And there, forgiveness is found in His name. That's the Gospel, says Peter. That's the God-man who who dies a sinner's cursed death on a tree when He didn't deserve that death. We do, but He does it for us. And in Him, there is forgiveness, there is life. That's what Cornelius needed to hear to be saved. In fact, we read that while Peter is still going through these things, this happens. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. 
for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. This is like Pentecost again, right? There's almost like a reason I had Dean read that for us. In fact, when Peter reports this in our other text as we've been going through from time to time, he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as us on, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This baptism is like a seal, a nobleman's seal as he signs an official document with the Holy Spirit's baptism is a sort of seal of salvation, says Paul in his writings. And this Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles, says Peter. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I I, that I could stand in God's way? The only time in the world when God told me really works. (laughs) You know how many times you hear that, you know, God told me I should marry you. (laughs) God's showed up. He's verified it. He fell on them the same way he fell on us. As I said, the Holy Spirit seems to be putting visible, tangible bookmarks for the disciples. In Acts chapter 2, in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit shows up on Pentecost, falls on the 120. They all begin to speak in tongues and languages. The second tier of the Great Commission in Samaria... We read that Philip, when he went to Samaria and the Samaritans believed, we we read this weird passage. It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Peter and John, two leaders among equals in the early church, had to be present in Samaria. And when they received the Holy Spirit, some would call this the Samaritan Pentecost. Now, was there speaking in tongues? Well, Luke describes one character who witnesses it in verse 18. He says, now when Simon saw that Peter was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, and then it goes on to talk about how Simon felt about that, or what he wanted to from the, the, the apostles. But the point is, is what did Simon see? <laughs> well, how can you tell that the Holy Spirit came down? My guess is that maybe it was similar to what happened to in Jerusalem on Pentecost. And it's similar to what happens in the third tier of the Great Commission. Jesus says, you will witness in Jerusalem and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Now we're here at the ends of the earth with Gentiles to hear the good news of Christ. And God, the Holy Spirit, is saying, you're doing what I've called you to do. The church is going from Jerusalem to Samaria to the Gentile Pentecost here in Cornelius' house. As Peter's audience hears, as he reports it to them in chapter 11, verse 18, it says, When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I want you to hear that. That what Peter experienced here and what those over him in chapter 11 agree with him about, about 
is nothing less than a great tangible physical domino into the reason that you are here today, worshiping God, beckoned by God to hear God. God has granted repentance to us that leads to life. And I say this often, but I'll say it again. Sure, it's a life ever after, but it's a life that begins now. It's a life that has very real, tangible, physical, life-altering ramifications for Peter, for the disciples. Persecution is happening in their life because of Christ. See, it's interesting, the very next verse in Acts chapter 11 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And I wonder if you just hear the ramifications of their accepting Christ there. Why do people accept Christ? Why do people accept a life that gives them persecutions? That moves them from their homes? We know from the Bible that Peter has a mother-in-law. Is Peter still married? Is he a widower? Why has he left his life, his family, his job as a fisherman? And why is he now currently in a Roman soldier's house telling him about Jesus? Because Peter has received a repentance that leads to life. The same repentance that has come to the Gentiles like you and me. Have you received that repentance that leads to life? Paul, another new convert in Acts we talked about a few weeks ago, looks at what happens with Christ in this way. In closing, he writes the church in Rome stating, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Paul says you have two options. Presenting ourselves, presenting yourselves, let's try to keep the same pronouns. (laughs) Presenting ourselves in service to righteousness or to sin. You've been here. I've been here. Vicious cycle sins. You want to stop doing this, but you can't. You feel guilt over it. Other times you try to numb yourself and you numb your conscience. Other times you lie to yourself. I'm not enslaved to this. I can stop any time. I can make a choice to not do it. And a ramification, I just want to say a ramification, of the gospel in Christ is this. You're absolutely right. You can make a choice to not do it. In Christ, you can become forgiven of that sin and then have the power to present your life to Him. That's the point. Don't be misled. The gospel is not just to remove sin and remove penalties of sin from my life deal, but something else also has to take place. Has to take its place in your life. Something else has to become for you what the, the, the time and the affections and the pleasures of that sin once was, something else needs to take that place. Thankfully, man, I lost my spot. <laughs> David writes for us in the Psalms that at God's hand, at God's right hand, are pleasures forevermore. So once that sin is removed and God becomes where you have your affections, and your pleasures are at. At the end of Romans 6, Paul 
says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I want you to start hearing that phrase as you read the Bible. Hear that phrase, eternal life, not only as eternity after you die, but as life that starts now. That's the kind of life you can live as one life of eternity. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we make your gospel too small. How great it would have been to be in the culture and the mindset that Peter was whenever this revelation dropped on his shoulders. He thought what you did was something big, but you reveal it's something a whole lot bigger. He thought that you had saved the Jews once and for all, but you revealed to him, no, I'm saving the world. Father, would you help us to have that sort of vision for what you can do in our lives? Would you show us that what we have in mind whenever we come to church, read the Bible, pray, claim to be a Christian, and what you have in mind are two drastically, drastically different things. We think it's personal. You make it worldwide and public. We think it's something we can do relatively privately, but you want to do something big and public in us. We think it's about reading our Bibles and growing a little bit here and there. You make it about other people. Help us to make that change in our hearts and our lives. Help us to be more like Peter here, who's willing to do very physical and tangible things, put his very life in danger, and eventually end up a martyr's death. But he's doing it because he found a repentance that leads to life. Help us to find that repentance that leads to life. Father, help us to know that we can make a choice when it comes to sins, that we don't need to present ourselves as slaves of unrighteousness and disobedience that leads to death, but we can present ourselves to you and find life and obedience and righteousness. And Father, help us to know the truth of what David says in the Psalms, that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures that far outdo what we thought sin would give us. Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.